Romans chapter number 16. We got down to verse 20 last time. So Paul's closing this book out. We're closing the letter to the Romans. And he has saluted all of the brethren that he knows at the church at Rome. And he's come down to his final warning about those that are teaching and preaching doctrine that is not biblical. They're resting the Scriptures. They're twisting the message of the Word of God. So Paul gives one last warning. Be mindful of this. And those that are opposed to the doctrine of the Bible, you mark them out. And so we come to verse 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So the church now, and you you put yourself in this day especially, I realize that's a great blessing to us today as well, but here's the church under pressure from religion. All religion is opposed to the church. It's open and it's, it's persecution. You've got the, the government itself. It's against the law even to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It's seen as treasonous and opposed to Caesar and the government and they're oppressing. You've got even inside the church these that are spreading lies and false doctrine and that's opposed to the gospel and to the truth. And even the economy of the world in that day. They were shutting out the Christians, preventing them from buying and selling and working because of their confession and profession of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they've got this promise. The God of peace shall bruise Satan. This is calling all the way back to Genesis 3 where the Lord told the serpent that the seed of the woman was going to bruise his head And certainly that victory was wrought in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we're living today, we've not fully realized the victory over Satan for ourselves just yet. You see, and now, don't leave me there. We're still at war against him. He's still present. He was present against the church at Rome in all of these ways. And they were in the battle and the war against evil and the devil. But wouldn't you say that everyone that received this letter in Paul's day, Satan's been bruised under their heels. They've died and they've been able to say, Oh grave, where is your victory? And death, where is your sting? And so they've been delivered. And the church has this promise, a promise of absolute victory. The devil would like to waller man down in self-pity and sorrow and get man to a place where he thinks this is all in vain. And if you've ever tried to do anything, you've been there. This is a waste of my time and effort. And this has done me no good. But the promise is there. God is going to bruise Satan even under our feet. Because the Lord Jesus has brought about victory and we are placed in Christ, even we ourselves are going to have victory over this enemy. He's not going to walk over us. 
He's not going to prevail and win over the church. But in the end, in that day, in that day the Lord will bruise Satan under our feet. So we have promise of victory. Fight onward. The church is going to come out in the end. The church is going to come out victorious. Don't be disheartened. The devil's a liar. He's lying to your heart and to your mind. Shortly. That's, the, that's what he says. He shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. I mean, how much longer have we got to fight? Some may be longer than others. Nobody has any idea how long that battle's going to be. But we know this, especially in, in the view of eternity, we've got a very short time to fight and to war. A very short time to endure. A very short time to stand in the battle. And victory is coming. Now you can rest in the deliverance that's in Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 25, let's read just a few verses there. Verse number 8. He will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. And the rebuke of His people shall He take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. And it shall be in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for Him and He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him and we will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest, and Moab shall be trodden down under Him, even as a straw is trodden down for the dunghill. So the victory and deliverance of the church is coming. And He says the rebuke of my people is going to be removed. You think about Noah, I believe a picture we can see plainly. That as he's building the ark and preaching of judgment, that Noah was a fool in the eyes of the world. His name was a reproach and a rebuke to the world. When Noah's name came up, it was mockery and laughter from everybody. Wouldn't you say that's true? But in the day that the flood came, when judgment came, wouldn't you say the rebuke of Noah was removed? And that the world recognized that this man was preaching the truth. He really was God's man. God removed the reproach. Well, that day's coming for the church of the living God. The rebuke and the reproach and the affliction and the persecution will come to an end. And the world as a whole, not one individual left out, they'll recognize that the church was the people of God, that this was the gospel, that this was the truth. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So we're left in a battle with a victory promised at the end, but I've got time from now till that victory comes. It's not I have to fight in order to win, the winning is already there. I'm fighting now to get to that victory. The victory's in Jesus. So what does the church need today? As she's left in this battle, 
expecting and looking for the victory that's promised, the grace of our Lord, the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life, the graciousness and the mercy of God in our life. The Greek words charis, that's what it means, the divine influence. You know what the church needs? God's strength and His influence and His help day by day that we would fight and war in this battle being faithful to Him until the victory is won. I truly believe that in the hearts and minds and desires of the church, this ought to be number one. God, give us more grace. Give me more of Your strength and enable me to fight the good fight of faith while we have time here. Not looking to our strength, but the grace of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. So we're looking at something now, something that is unbearable of ourselves, but God is making a way that we would be able to bear that. And you can see again 2 Corinthians 12, Paul praying, and we've spoke about this Scripture many times, Paul praying for this thorn in the flesh to depart, and God says, my grace is sufficient. Let me be your source of strength, and I'll give you sufficient that you need to endure the affliction that's present with you. And if the church is going to endure today, it'll be by the same grace that enabled Paul, the same grace that strengthened the church at Rome, the same grace of God will be with us today. And so Paul's prayer, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. That word amen, that's, that's a Greek word. It's got nothing to do with gender. These fools in our world today, they've got no idea what they're talking about. The word means truth. Let it be. It's the same word. Jesus, when He says, verily, verily, it's this word. He's saying, amen, amen. Truly, truly. So Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, amen. And now here we saw Paul greeting those of the church at Rome. And so if I wrote you a letter, I would say hello to Kevin, hello to Dwight, hello to Josh, and I would name you. But now those that are with Paul are going to send their greetings to the church at Rome. Timotheus, Timothy, my work fellow, and Lucius, and Jason, and Sosipater, my kinsman, salute you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Gaius, mine host, and of the whole church, saluteth you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you. And Quartus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So we're not going to dig too much into the names. These are names you see in the book of Acts and in other places in the New Testament. Jason was one that rescued Paul from trouble. Timothy, of course, was 
the pastor at Ephesus. You see there's two letters written to him. And through these names, there's all this linkage of Scripture. And, and if you'd done a study, if you took the time, you followed some of these names, you could put together how these knew each other and how their ministries intertwined really just from Scripture. But the desire from one another and their prayer for the church at Rome is that the grace of God be with them. So you see where the desire is as Paul prays for the church. Paul says, may the grace of God be with you. As these other brethren pray for the church, they say, may the grace of God be with you. What should we desire even one for another? I should desire for me. God, give me grace. And for you, God, give you grace. And if you're in affliction, if you're in persecution, if you're in trouble, or if you're on top of the mountain and enjoying life, we're in need of the infusion of the grace of God. The the greatest need, I, I believe the greatest need that there is in the church today that the grace of God be with us. And so, you see that this letter was written by Tertius. In verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, and the scholars would say that Paul had an eye problem. We don't have Scripture to back that up, but that may very well have been the case. But many times, most of his letters was written by somebody else. Paul's dictating it to them and they are writing it down as Paul speaks it. Now Galatians, you read Paul says, you see how large a letter that I've written unto you. Galatians is one of the shorter ones though. Much shorter than Romans. Shorter than both the letter to the Corinthians. But it looks like Paul wrote that one with his own hand. And if he had eye problems, he had to write large where he could see it. So another, just this is real. This is not fairy tale. This was real people that were really alive, that were really enduring affliction, just as real as you and I were. Paul had a real man with a real hand that really wrote this down as he spoke it. Phoebe was a real woman that was really in the church that actually walked with her feet or on a camel or however she traveled and she took this from Corinth to Rome. This was real people just as we are. They endured affliction just like we are. Ain't it something how the devil says, you're the only one. That's what the devil told Elijah and he still tells that lie today. You're the only people and the only person that's ever seen or endured anything like this. And it's a lie. And so, we come to the final doxology of the book. Now to him, we'll read 25 and following. We'll finish reading and then go back. To him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment 
of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith to God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Now I realize you read that lump there and that sounds like a lot of random things that just don't line up. But there's, there's a reason that it's like that. This is one giant sentence. But he's pausing in the middle to add explanation to things. But if you read it, 25, to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel. Now he's going to expound from there through the end of 26 on what this gospel is. To him that is of power to establish you, verse 27, to God only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. That's the actual sentence. And this in the middle is going to explain what the gospel is. So in the close of the book, what have we got? Praise to God. To God only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Not today only, but forever to God be the glory because it's of Him, through Him, and to Him that we're in the family of God. So it is God only wise that is of power to establish. That word means to set fast or to turn resolutely. So you think about setting fast. I think about a a foundation set in the rock or a Uh, uh, maybe an anchor bolt that's set in concrete. And it's set fast and it's unmovable. You know what God's able to do? He's able to establish His church in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that the winds of doctrine and that the lies of the devil and that the affliction of the world and the storms of life would not move them in the least bit. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be more established tomorrow than we are today? To be able to stand a little firmer tomorrow, to ever be growing stronger and wiser with a greater understanding day by day. God is the one that has the power to establish us according to my gospel. How is this being brought about? Without the gospel, there is no establishment. Without the Lord Jesus, we have no place to be established. We're corrupted, we're fallen, we're deceived, and we can't be delivered from that. But through the gospel... God establishes. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say His flesh, 
and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know what he's saying here? That Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice. How perfect was He? No spot or blemish. And the sacrifice was accepted by God and it was so perfect that every sin in our lives has been taken away. There's no more offering for sin. If I sin today, I don't need the Lord to be killed again for that. And if I sin today, I don't need to be whipped on my back to pay for that. If I sin today, I don't have to suffer tomorrow to make up for it. And if I sin today, I don't have to give up a a lamb at the temple to pay for that. See, man will tell you, well, if you sin, you're going to suffer for that. To pay for it. You've got to get paid up. There is no more offering for sin. Where the, the forgiveness and where the remission of these sins are in Jesus, there's nothing else that needs to be offered. His offer, offering was perfect and complete and accepted by God to the removal of every sin. How sure is that? I tell you, it's to the place that we can have a clear conscience before God and come boldly into the throne room of grace. We can draw near with full assurance of faith. You know, you think about the priest now, and you go all the way back to the beginning. Aaron had two sons that were priests. They went in before God and offered strange fire. You remember what happened to those two sons? Nadab and Abihu. You know what happened to them? Fire come off the altar and consumed them and they died. You think people got afraid then of what they'd done before God. And so the high priest, he had permission once a year to come into the holy place where God was. And he had a set ceremony and cleansing and ritual that he had to go through before he could go in there. Now don't you know that every time, every day of atonement, every year that the high priest had to go through, he's continually thinking in his mind, did I do everything? Maybe even had a little checklist on a piece of paper. Have I done everything that I need to do to go in that I die not. And he looked at himself in the looking glass and said, have I cleaned every spot off of me before I go in to the Lord? Have I got the blood? Have I, have I done everything God's commanded? It was a fearful thing. Because his life was on the line. But the church in Jesus don't come to God in fear. In Jesus, we come to God with full assurance of faith, knowing that our sacrifice and our high priest has already fulfilled all the requirements 
and I can come before God now in Him and be heard. See, that's what He says in Hebrews. That's what the Bible teaches. Would God that people could be established in that? In Romans 8.31, now we're going to skip around here. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And verse 37, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Who's going to stop the church from coming before God? Who's going to convict the church of sin? Uh, you're going you're to fight a fight right there. Well, the church is sinful. And the church needs to get cleaned up. I am sinful. And I do continually need to repent. And I need to continually pray for more grace to overcome my sinfulness. But my righteousness before God is never affected. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect if God has already... He's not going to one day. He's not waiting on me to suffer enough that I've got paid up. He's not waiting on me to offer enough to Him at the altar that my sins would be paid for. But God has already justified us. Now who's going to make us guilty? Can anybody? It can't happen. And can peril or sword or affliction or trouble, can that separate us from Christ? Another lie the devil. If God loved you, you wouldn't have to go through this. If God cared for you, you'd never be here. But you know, Paul says, can any of these things separate us? Nay, we are more than conquerors. Paul suffered immensely. All his life he suffered. The devil's people were rich, they were popular, and they were well known. Paul was naked and hungry and beaten. But it didn't separate him from Christ. He was more than a conqueror. So through the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, so disclosure, that's that pulling the cover off and revealing of the mystery. It's a secret through this idea of silence imposed. It's Vaughn, I'm going to tell you this, and don't you dare say anything about it. So I've told him a secret because I've told him he can't talk about it. Nobody else can know. You know, that was the plan of God for salvation. That was a mystery through all of the Old Testament. They had glimpses. They had pictures. 
they had through the lattice work they saw, but they never come to a full understanding of what God was going to do in Jesus Christ. We've got, we've got proof of it. Peter says many righteous men, many prophets desired to look into this. Jesus said many men have desired to see this day. But they weren't allowed. God sealed it up. But now this mystery is being disclosed. It's no longer a secret. God has uncovered it through Jesus Christ that Jesus was the plan that the church have their sins removed, that they would be brought into the family of God, that the Holy Ghost would indwell them that belong to Jesus. So listen, kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest by the Scriptures of the prophets. So when Paul's writing this letter, there there was no New Testament. And depending on when John wrote Revelation, it doesn't look like any of the apostles had a New Testament. And if there was a collection of the books, they cost so much, they, they didn't just go to the copier and make a copy. If it was going to be copied, it had to be handwritten. And so these things were expensive. It wasn't cheap to have a letter copied. So very few had copies of more than one letter in this day. And yet, the the gospel, the word that was being manifested was the word of the prophets. They're preaching out of the Old Testament. That that had been for, there was 700 silent years, and most of the prophets were written well before that. So Scripture that was antique, they had had it in their laps for years and years and years. They heard these Scriptures read at the temple every Sabbath day. It's what they were taught from children. And yet they never could see the mystery that was hidden in it. But Jesus Christ was the mystery. And from these Old Testament Scriptures... Jesus is now being manifested. And listen, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest unto His saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." In Ephesians 3, 9, to make all men see the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. So this was something that God had planned. The Bible says in Romans, says in Colossians, and again in Ephesians, we can look everywhere you look, want to look, and it's from the beginning, from the creation of the world. He says here in Romans, kept secret since the world began. God has kept this from man from the very beginning, but now He's opening it up that man can see. How is this great mystery of this salvation, of this forgiveness of sin, 
of this adoption into the family of God, of this indwelling Christ. How is this revealed? Through the gospel. The gospel is the means that God is manifesting. By the commandment of God, of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for obedience of the faith. So you remember the Great Commission. Go and preach. Who told them to go preach to every nation? Even unto the ends of the world. This was God's commandment that the gospel go out and that the gospel be preached because this mystery was going to be unveiled through the gospel. See, it's not some people 300 years ago that made this church business up and that's why we go through this day after day. But this was commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ and that's why that the church preaches and teaches the Word of God. This is the means that God's chose to disclose the mystery. So to all nations for obedience to the faith. I'm running out of time. Attentive hearkening, compliance, or submission. You know what this salvation is? So much of it today is an easy believism. It's a if you believe and if you profess, that's good enough. And you're saved and 30 years later, no matter what the life looks like, that profession was enough to get you into heaven. That's that's the way it's taught today. But even here in this little doxology, this little word of praise for what God has done for His church, there's obedience of the faith tied to it. And notice what it, what it says. I, I just said it wrong, and I did it unintentionally. But I think that's the way we think of it sometimes. For obedience of the faith. But that's not what the Scripture says. It is obedience of faith. Where does obedience come from? Obedience is of faith. When there is faith present, then there is obedience as a result. Faith brings about an obedience to the Word of God. What kind of obedience does it bring? Well, it brought Abel to offer a more perfect sacrifice than Cain. And it brought Enoch to a place that he walked with God. It brought Noah to a place that he built an ark. It brought Abraham to a place that he left his home country and dwelt in a tent. It brought Abraham to a place that he offered Isaac up on the mountain. It brought Moses to a place that he forsook Pharaoh's house that he might suffer affliction. We're just going through Hebrews 11. But you see, everywhere there's real faith, there's obedience in the life that goes with it. So when you look at a life and there's no obedience, what does that tell you? There's no faith. There's no persuasion. Remember what the word faith means. It's not believe. Those two are tied far too closely together. Faith is more than I believe. Faith is deeper than that. The meaning of the word faith, it means a persuasion. 
a conviction of moral truth, a credence. So it's that that persuades me. Remember what the Bible says of Abraham. He was fully persuaded. That's what faith is. A persuasion or a conviction of truth. Where does that faith come from? Was there persuasion before God and the Spirit came to you? Or did God and the Spirit come to you and persuade you? And when God persuaded you, you know what that brought you to do? You are now persuaded. God has wrought faith in you by the Spirit and by the Word of God. He's convinced you of the truth. And now that you're convinced, you're coming to God. There's obedience that's tied to that persuasion. God's done a work and it's bringing about your obedience. That's what salvation is. You can't separate the two. Know that. If there's no obedience, there's no faith. There's no yielding. There's not. This gospel was being preached for the obedience of faith. Unto all nations, to God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. So in, in Ephesians 2 and 10, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So this is the work of God Remember the verses before in Ephesians 2. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For ye, we are His workmanship. Why did God bestow all this on us that we could be saved? He's, he's going to change our life. He's going to make new creatures out of us. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. He died for all that, that they should not henceforth live unto themselves. I think the focus of you need to live better, I think the focus is in the wrong place. People do need to live better. I agree with that. We do need to have better works. I agree with that. But the problem is the faith that's in the heart. When people are persuaded by the Holy Spirit of God, when God generates faith, in their heart, there will be obedience with faith. They cannot be separated. Don't let them be separated. Don't make faith a simple belief in your head. The devils believe. Christians have faith. And with faith is obedience. It can't be separated. To God only wise. Hebrews 13.15 By Him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto His name. What kind of view should the church always hold of God? How should, when I think about God, how should I always think about Him and how should I always act? towards Him. I think grateful. I think that's a, a good word right there. 
always recognizing that it's only by Him that we're anything. You can apply that to any facet of your life. If you are something, it is from God. None of it is self-generated. For every good and perfect gift cometh down. It's not already here, but it comes down from the Father of lights. So as the church looks towards God, it ought to be God, we are thankful today. We are grateful. And I realize you can get hung up and be grateful for a lot of things that are very, very temporary. Very temporary. The things which are seen are temporal. I can thank Him for my shoes and I can run my heel through them in the driveway tonight and they're gone. That Maybe that sounds silly, but that's the truth. The things of this world are very temporary, but I tell you, thankful to God through Jesus Christ forever. Jesus is not something that waxes old as a garment. But we're thankful for Him today. If we live tomorrow, we can be thankful for that work tomorrow. And when we die, we'll be thankful for Him then to deliver us from death. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, there'll still be glory to the Lord because it's by Him that we're there. It's by Him that we're here today and we've made it thus far and it'll be by Him in glory. There's no place that I should run out of gratefulness to God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice this, the only way that we're going to be, give glory to God is through Jesus Christ. I can't thank Him outside of Jesus. I've got no means to appear before a holy God without Jesus Christ. So it's all tied up and wrapped up in Him. Written to the Romans from Corinthus, sent by Phoebe, servant of the church at Chantria. So that's the end of the letter to the Romans. Any